Mary Magdalene is the first person to lay her eyes on the risen Christ. Immediately preceding the scripture that we're all about to hear, there's an account of two of the disciples, Peter and presumably John, racing to Jesus' tomb after Mary reports back that it's empty. And they run there with the utmost haste, trying to outdo each other. They take a quick look inside when they get there, uh, and then they return home, mystified. But Mary stays behind there in that dark place before the sun has risen. And that's where she meets her risen master. In that place, in that space of grief and bewilderment, Mary finds Jesus. That's where she finds her joy. The other two disciples don't stand still long enough to experience anything at all. They race towards a resolution, and they find nothing. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. A reading from the Gospel according to John. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. There is only one actor in Hollywood who can make me cry. I have always been deeply moved 
by Ben Affleck's performance on the silver screen. <laughs> the films that he stars in are admittedly hit or miss, with generally more misses than hits if uh, you look at aggregate film scores and critical reviews. But it's my personal opinion that for the past two decades, Affleck has turned in reliably poignant performances. Whether portraying a lovelorn comic book artist or a single father struggling to raise his daughter, or even Batman, the Dark Knight himself, Affleck always brings a kind of quiet desperation to his work. He's a pretty tall guy, arguably good-looking, but there's a clumsy insecurity about him. He carries himself like a boy who's learning how to be a man. On screen, he's a jerk sometimes, and sometimes he's one in real life too, but he brings an emotional depth to his characters that just, just gets me right here. And those eyes, those beautiful hazel eyes, <laughs> deep pools of nameless sorrow, when they begin to tear up, so do mine. But there's a meta-narrative going on here, too. You see, Ben Affleck, not the actor, not the characters he plays, but rather the man, seems to be as troubled as the men he portrays in film. It's public knowledge that he's struggled over the years with depression and alcoholism and divorce. He's 45 years old and entering middle age with more box office losses than wins. Now, he does still have a lot going for him. You know, he's got three kids, he's got a respectable acting career, two Oscars, and three Golden Globe awards to show for it. But his life is, I imagine, reflective of the common human experience, a blend of beauty and sorrow, often blurring together. Now, for 20 years, I've been telling people that Ben Affleck movies make me cry, and you know, they usually laugh at me when I tell them that, as if it's so ridiculous. But my brother, just last week, he sent me uh, a recent New York Times, I'm sorry, uh, New Yorker magazine article called The Great Sadness of Ben Affleck, along with a brief note that said, you were really ahead of the curve on this one. <laughs> the piece is a reflection of Affleck's shifting fortunes and struggles, printed alongside a somewhat melancholy photograph of him standing on the seashore, wearing nothing but a long towel that's draped around his midsection. He looks old and tired, as if wearily looking towards the future, his best days behind him. Staring at the water before him, the author writes, his gaze obscure and empty, Affleck is a defeated Roman senator. The image suggests not just the fall of Affleck, but the coming fall of man. The article was lambasted as being a mean-spirited piece, specifically because it pointed out that uh, the actor had gained some weight and poked fun uh, at the large tattoo of a rising phoenix, phoenix on his back. Uh, personally, I thought it was a poignant reflection 
on middle age. I didn't think there was anything particularly mean about it. It was certainly less mean-spirited than another article I just read about him that was simply titled, An Ode to Ben Affleck's Stained T-Shirts. In a world of insane tweets, potentially tragic feuds, and too much drama to handle, the writer of that piece declares, it's comforting to know these consistently messy shirts can offer the stability and security we so desperately need. I don't know. I guess there's just something about the guy that I find relatable. He's only a few years older than I am, so in some ways we've grown up together. You know, some of the pain that he's portrayed on the screen has been my pain, too, as I've grown from a young adult into an older young adult. <laughs> Maybe that's why his performances move me so profoundly. But the truth is, I find it harder to watch his films nowadays. Ever since I became a father, for whatever reason, I've become more sensitive to emotional stimuli. And while I'm not proud of it, I sometimes find myself avoiding anything that will provoke a strong emotional response. Deep feelings, even good ones, can be painful in their own way. Even the lights can hurt your eyes when you've been in the dark for too long. This incident that's recorded in John's Gospel, this exchange between Mary Magdalene and Jesus outside of his tomb, is perhaps the most poignant moment in all of our scriptures. I love the Bible. I love its stories and its lessons and the way that it seems to live and breathe offering new interpretations with every reading. But if I'm being honest, I can't say that there are a lot of parts in it that really bring a tear to my eye. Jesus' death on the cross is one of them. When my father was dying many years ago, he asked me if he thought that there was a place for him in heaven. He worried that he hadn't gone to church enough, or that he made too many mistakes in his life. And to answer his question, I read him the story of Jesus and the two criminals who were executed alongside him. And to this day, the words that Jesus spoke to them make me tremble because they're the same words that I shared with my father. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This story about Jesus and Mary is equally touching. Mary, grief-stricken, is searching for Jesus' body, which has gone missing from the tomb. And desperate, she lays eyes on a nearby man and practically grabs him by the lapels. And blinded by raw panic, she doesn't really even look at him. She assumes that he's the caretaker of the garden that they're standing in. Now, in the garden, her face is mere inches away from his, but her eyes are wet and blurry with tears. Her mind is reeling. She's, she's been through so much these past few days. 
She'd watched her best friend and mentor get arrested. She followed his every footstep toward Golgotha. She collapsed, sobbing at the foot of the cross. Pain has become her new normal. It's all she knows anymore. And in the garden, it's all she can see. But then, all of a sudden, that terrible spell is broken with a single word when the man speaks her name. Mary. Rabuni, she replies breathlessly as she finally recognizes Jesus. And in the space of one fluttering heartbeat, her agony turns to ecstasy. This moment is so beautiful that it almost hurts. It stirs tears of a different kind. Sometimes pain can numb our senses till it's hard to feel anything at all. The defenses that we build to guard our hearts can be indiscriminate, dulling the edges of grief and joy alike. You don't get to pick and choose. And maybe it's easier to live that way, avoiding emotional extremes, dwelling in the calmer spaces between, never feeling too much pain or too much joy. But you might hesitate to call that living at all. Mary could have hardened her heart, determined to never love or cry again. She could have wiped away her tears forever. She could have stayed away from the tomb altogether that day. She could have worn sunglasses to hide her eyes, those windows to the soul, never letting anyone in. And she would have never known just how bright the light of Christ can be because she would have been too blind to see it. Now, for my part, speaking literally, my eyesight is terrible. I've been wearing glasses since I was three years old, and frankly, I don't care much for them. I feel like they cramp my style, you know? They undermine my otherwise rugged, tough guy persona. I'm not especially interested in contact lenses, though, because honestly, that just seems like a lot of work. So the only solution I found uh, is to wear sunglasses as often as possible. When I was a kid, I bought a pair of those big plastic sunglasses that you're supposed to wear over your regular eyeglasses. They were called eliminators on the box, which I thought was pretty cool. Problem was, they were designed for adults, so they were absolutely gigantic on my little head. I looked like an eight-year-old version of the Terminator <laughs> and completely ridiculous. Now, as an adult, I have transition lenses that grow darker in the sunlight, but I feel like they don't work as well as I'd like them to. You know, it takes too long for them to dim. They don't work in the car. So I took it upon myself to pick up a pair of these clip-on micro uh, mirror shades, which work like a charm. 
Now, <laughs> some people think that clip-on sunglasses are uncool. <laughs> but you heard it here first, they're making a comeback. I mean, look what these things can do. How cool is that? Now, I was, uh, I was digging through some old boxes the other day, and I came across a pair of prescription sunglasses that I used to wear many years ago. They brought back a lot of bittersweet memories, but I pushed those aside and slipped on the glasses. and I slipped into a world of calm. Not quite rose-colored, as you can see, but pleasantly nostalgic. Wearing them, the world looks like an old photograph, yellowed and faded. Bright colors are dulled, and everything looks more harmless in these amber hues, as if the things and the people that you see are already in the past. And now it's even better because the prescription is like 15 years old. You all just look like a big blob of a thousand faces. Which is actually pretty terrifying. The thing is, uh, you know, when I wore these glasses back in college and in graduate school, I never took them off. They were the only glasses I had. I wore them to class. I wore them to work. I wore my sunglasses at night. I wore them in the pulpit at Yale when I was learning to preach. I felt like they gave me an advantage socially uh, because I could read everyone else's eyes, but they couldn't read mine. But more importantly, they let me live in a different world, an easier one, where edges were softer and colors were muted and nothing was especially intense. It was an easier way to live. But it's not the life that our God calls us to live. No, God calls us, especially during Holy Week and Easter, to bear witness to both profound sorrow and overwhelming joy. God calls us to the fullness of the human experience, just as Christ experienced it. To be crucified and to be resurrected. I said earlier that becoming a father seems to have awakened something deep inside of me, that it's increased my sensitivity to strong feelings on both ends of the spectrum. I find myself unable to watch certain kinds of films, whether or not they star Ben Affleck, that are too emotionally intense. I sometimes find myself turning them off if I get too overwhelmed. I stayed a mile away from that melancholy Manchester by the Sea movie that came out last year. I wouldn't start Casey Affleck, Ben's little brother, but that was still more Affleck than I could handle. <laughs> and when I look at one of my boys, even if they're just sitting on the couch, you know, watching TV, their faces covered with potato chip crumbs and ketchup, I'm completely overwhelmed. It's a good feeling. But it's unsettling in its intensity, and, and sometimes I have to look away. But sometimes 
I force myself to keep watching and to let my heart fill up until it bursts. Until one of them turns to look at me and says, Dad, why are you staring at us? (laughs) Those emotional highs and lows are born of love. The joy of having it, the fear of losing it, the agony of grieving it. But if we can't love deeply, then we cut ourselves off from the source of it, from the risen Christ, and we fail to recognize him in our midst. About a week and a half ago, I was sitting right there in that very pew, all the way up front, while a group of liturgists and musicians called the many led us in a Lenten worship service. It was a much smaller service. There were only about 40 of us gathered there. But there was a a moment in that service that I remember very vividly. A young woman sat at that piano, singing a song called Only Grace. I'd never heard it before, and maybe it was the melody or the words, but something in it touched me deeply. Things are broken here. Things are shared. Things are carried here. Hearts bow in prayer. It is grace, only grace, that brings us here, holds us together here. Maybe it was the fact that I wasn't leading worship that gave me a different perspective. Maybe it's easier to see Jesus from the pew than from here in the pulpit. Maybe it was the fact that this young woman was singing just a few feet in front of me and I couldn't change the channel or look away or turn it off. But as she moved into the second verse, something continued to stir deep inside me. Things are dying here. Things are torn. Things are growing here. And burdens born. Amazing grace, hear the sound. Here is where hope is found. As I heard those words, my eyes began to sting as tears welled up, and I cried there in that pew. First time I cried in a long time wasn't joy or sorrow exactly, but something else altogether, a a recognition of God's presence here in this community, present in the, the joy and in the pain that we experience together. And it stirred up every deep emotion I'd ever had. I imagine that's what Mary felt in the garden on that first Easter. It's what we all feel, I think, when we see clearly enough to recognize Jesus, to be overwhelmed with love, and to proclaim that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.